Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Low Blow Booking Podcast. My name is Derek Cornett, and we are coming at you live and in living color on your mobile listening devices, checking us out through iTunes and Podbean. We are growing by the day, and ladies and gentlemen, tonight is a very special night. I have got a very, very special guest. I want to welcome in a man who has traveled the world to do this great thing we call professional wrestling. This man is known throughout the nation as one of the tough enough competitors. He is currently uh, with Lucha Underground. He is a man that came from Utah at UCW. Ladies and gentlemen, let me welcome in Martin Casals. Martin, how's it going tonight? Man, after that freaking introduction, my night's going fantastic. Absolutely. Uh, Martin, it, it's exciting to have you on the show. Uh, you and I met a couple years ago. Um, out in Utah when I came out and worked with uh, Tyler Cintron, our, our mutual friend. Um, and I'm thankful for the, the relationship that we have. And I'm looking forward to some of the things that we're going to be able to talk about here tonight and hopefully in the future and um, get your perspective on some of the things that are going on uh, in your career and some of the things that are going on now and definitely what the future holds for Martin Casals in the world of professional wrestling. I think it's an exciting time for professional wrestling again in my life right now, so that sounds like a good conversation for me. Awesome. Well, you know, let's let's kick things back to when did you first become a wrestling fan? What what was it that hooked you? Who were some of your early favorites? What were some of your earliest memories? Talk about what uh, what planted the seed for you to be uh, where you're at at this point in your life. Oh, I came in, like, I hear all these stories where hey, I watched the entire time growing up, and uh, I unfortunately didn't know about it until way later. Um, the Monday Night Wars, right? In the middle of the heat of Monday Night Wars, when I first started taking note of professional wrestling, um, I, my grandpa used to watch WCW all the time, and I saw, I think I saw my first glimpses of wrestling when I saw the NWO kick the crap out of somebody. Like, hey, that's not nice. Uh, so I was looking at pissed at seeing this thing, these giant dudes beating the hell out of somebody on TV. Um, and then I finally, like, the first match that I ever remember was in WCW Nitro, Bill Goldberg versus Hugh Morris in Salt Lake City. And I remember it because it was in Salt Lake City. Like, these guys travel. Oh, that's cool. So I started watching. And uh, that's when I started getting hooked. And I was playing football. I was in high school back in that time. And, uh, Goldberg, to me, popped out because I was playing football at that time. I was got from the football team there, and Goldberg was this huge standout. So, hey, I will watch Goldberg tear it up to these guys. Absolutely. Um, I guess to give you a little insight, my first match that I remember seeing was Hulk Hogan versus Ted DiBiase in 1989 at a Saturday night's main event. Um, I've watched that tape. I watched that tape until it didn't get watched anymore. And then in about 2000, I got my hands on a video of that tape or of that show. And I've gone back and watched it numerous times. And it always brings back just fond memories of being a kid and, and having my wrestling guys sprawled out all over the place. And, um, you know, that's what, that's what really hooked me in. And that's what's brought me to this moment in my life. Um, so who was the first one that kind of trained you in pro wrestling and, and how did you get started with it? Um, I went to one of the WWE shows here that was Lives of the Raw Roulette one. They had an episode of Raw with something about a Russian roulette or a Raw roulette or something like that. That was the first time I ever went. And when I was standing in line to get in, uh, one of the local guys here from the company handed me a, a flyer and said, hey, you should come check out this wrestling show for 
showed up. The second I stepped into the ring, the second I touched both feet on the ropes, I was like, like, this is cool. And uh, so Steve Nelson, who's the owner of UCW, still is, is still 13 years running now. Uh, he was the first guy that gave me the introduction of kind of how wrestling is and what it's all about. And then Derek Jenny was the man in the company and in the state. And so I just kind of gravitated towards him and tried to learn as much information as possible. So those two are the guys that I kind of pretty much say they took me right from the beginning. And then uh, way, way later, way, way later, uh, Tom Howard, a guy who ran UPW out in California, he actually came here, moved here for, for Utah, and he's been doing some training here too. So he, he says, go ahead, throw money, we'll pay some money, whatever. So I'm going to train that too. So I've got a lot of different training from a lot of different people, but to start now, because they're covered. And Steve Nelson here at UCW. Nice. Um, I know that my training as a pro wrestler was pretty uh, shady, if you will. Uh, $600, uh, three sessions, uh, ended up getting about six in, broke my leg midway through, and then was able to jump in the ring in six months. Um, not necessarily the best, if you will, but uh, I, I think what helped me was that I had watched so much and I tried to study so much, then I just was able to grasp it. How do you think that your training went, and how long was it for you to be able to step in the ring for the first time? Three weeks. Wow. Um, yeah, so I, I went in there uh, for my first day, learned bumps, learned the introduction of wrestling, and it showed three weeks later. And I'm not saying I knew anything about what I was doing, but I was lucky enough to become one pretty much straight out of high school, I turned on my college. I had some college scholarships for football, wrestling, and uh, lacrosse. But I wanted to focus on my studies, so I just kind of just gave up on athletics. But I still was a four-sport guy in high school, so I still had that very athletic-ness about me. Where I, I was, my hand-eye coordination was all there, so I was able to pick up on the physical aspects of it pretty fast um, and it was something that I was there in the, in the ring training every single day as many hours as I could until they kicked me out and said I want to go home and will you go home now um, when you're in the ring you know, I just wanted to stay there um, but yeah it was really only three weeks was I ready not even freaking close I had no clue what I was doing um, and I watch it now and it was god awful uh, but I wasn't going to complain about it. Absolutely. Uh, how do you think the mental and the psychological psychological aspects of wrestling kind of focused into you? Uh, where did you pick that up? Or do you think that you've really grasped some of those things when it comes down to how much those really make a match in comparison to the athleticism? Well, any sort of athletic person can do the physical things. Um, and especially guys who have done the gymnastic things, um, you'll hear that a lot in like AAA wrestling, like, hey, they can do some really cool stuff, but it makes zero sense. And then you got the WWE, which I hear a lot of people saying, well, hey, they pull some cool stuff out every once in a while. But mostly it's a bunch of entertainment. They're doing a lot more stuff rather than actual wrestling. So somewhere in the mix in there, it's, if, you, if you have any sort of athletic background, you can pick up the moves pretty quickly. Um, it's, and this is something I didn't learn until way later, 
Like, I was doing all anything I could think of, throwing my body in the line, didn't care. But it's the reason why you're doing the moves and what you do between the moves that actually make the match. And I didn't learn that till far later, so I, I started getting WWE experience, so I started traveling around. So, um, um, it's like, like it, it just kind of snapped one day, like, oh, that's why I'm actually doing this. That's why I'm making an angry face here. That's why these people in the WWE are getting pops for making an angry face, and that's why they don't. They spend six minutes with 76,000 people going crazy because they're staring at each other, and they don't need to hit a lockup in the first 10 seconds of the match. Absolutely. Now, you and I talked before we started going here tonight, and uh, we're going to talk about WrestleMania in just a couple minutes, but I wanted to ask you um, if you watched the the Undertaker-Bray Wyatt match. I did. And I thought that that was a clear example <coughs> excuse me, of two guys making facials at one another that really sold that contest as uh, something a little bit more because the Undertaker probably couldn't give everything he had, you know, but... Um, I thought that that was a match that had all that psychology in it. What do you think? Oh, yeah, most definitely. They both had, they're both, like, supernatural elements. Um, and honestly, like, you know, they hit all oh, the Undertaker, the old school, the, uh, the, the Brave Boy, it is finishing move, there's tombstones. But there wasn't one that stuck out to me, but I do remember the moment where he's upside down, and his little, like, spider or whatever the heck that's called, and then the Undertaker sits up, and I'm like, that's the moment where I popped him out of the entire match. Like, oh, shit. Two different guys are the supernatural things looking face-to-face at each other in their different ways of putting over each other characters. So I know it. I know how the match ended. Uh, but it's that one spot there where everyone popped when he sat up. That's what got me more. That's the thing I remember most about the match. Absolutely. Um, you spoke about characters. Um, your first gimmick, if you will, I guess, or your name that you went by was Tristan Gallo. Is that correct? That's right. How did you come up with this name? Um, is there a gimmick that went into Tristan Gallo um, that preceded you wrestling as Martin Casals? Um. So, again, I started wrestling, and then I was in a, in a match with probably way too soon. I had no idea what the heck I was doing. But he just, I asked Steve Nelson, the owner of UCW, called me one day and said, how does Tristan Gallo sound? I'm like, for what? For the name you're going to call you when you come out and wrestle. Oh, is that going to be my name? What's it mean? Oh, no, it means something strong. Okay. He could have called me some sort of stupid, like, Pink Panther that would have been out there and wrestled with Pink Panther. Crap, I wanted to get the ring. So he literally just Googled it up a name and gave me that. And really, the gimmick at first was I was just his little crony. So that was all right. And really didn't have any sort of gimmick except for the crony of him, who he plays the big evil owner of the corporation that you see pretty much in every single wrestling promotion ever. Yeah. Uh, so for me, I'm like, okay, I didn't think about it gimmick because I was trying to figure out what the hell I was doing like on the court circle. Um, and then I started figuring out, like, oh, okay, I should probably make myself stick out a little bit more than just the guy that comes out and kicks ass. So then I started thinking up, like, I'm, in my general life, I'm a little bit more, I think I watched too much cartoons when I was younger. <laughs> my mom is honestly very animated in a cartoon, and uh, so that's kind of how I am in life. I'm very friendly, I'm very touchy-feely, and uh, so it comes off as flirting. My girlfriend said it's flirting, but it comes <laughs> off as flirting. I'm just trying to be nice. Like, 
Um, so, um, and back at that time, I didn't have a girlfriend, so there was people that had their stipulations of what they thought I did with my nightlife. So I went with the ladies' band, half-breed heartthrob, because I'm half Mexican and half-white, but people can't go freaking can't tell because I don't have tan. Um, so I went half-breed heartthrob, the reflection of the section, sports, best in sports entertainment. Uh, the men, men want to be and the women want to be with. Pretty much anything relating to your girlfriend thinks I'm hot. Yep. That's what I was. Now, have you watched any Gino Hernandez? I didn't. I started working in NWA, and they started making comparisons. Yep. Because that was, I mean, his was the, the handsome heartthrob, or the ha- the half-breed, um, and he, he played that thing to, uh, you know, a perfect T, in my opinion. He's he's one of the all-time greats, and um, and obviously there would be that natural comparison of somebody who's half Hispanic, half white, um, and taking that gimmick, and I was just wondering if that had anything to do with it, but um, after you saw somebody like that, is there anything that changed the way that you approached it, or no? Um, yeah, I kind of went and saw a little bit of what he did. He almost had in his life that was really, like, we weren't doing a lot of backstage. Utah's kind of in this little, almost bubble. The closest wrestling place to us is seven hours to Reno or eight hours to Las Vegas. Otherwise, you were working at this one promotion in Utah. So it was like this little bubble. So we weren't doing vignettes and backstage stuff where we're driving fancy cars. And I started watching Joe, and then... I'm getting references like, hey, you remind me of this guy in the I'm like, well, after doing research on him, that in my mind is a big, big compliment. Like, it needs to be more than just what you say on the mic. It needs to kind of portray a lifestyle work to give it than just say you are this gimmick. So that's when I started wearing, I, I tried to wear a little bit more fancy clothes um, when I was doing anything with wrestling or if they were doing vignettes, I wanted it to be like, I had somewhere nicer as you put over, because everyone hates the people that are richer than them. That's just how it is. So. Yep. Well, absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and that's what I think the character development aspects of gentlemen who and ladies who want to wrestle in the indies, we've, we've got to take elements of other people um, in into our gimmick. I know I was always a huge Stan Hansen fan, but... Uh, God didn't grant me the gifts of being six five, three hundred pounds, uh, you know. But I still tried to incorporate that. Uh, were there other guys that you were watching or that you had watched that you incorporated some of their aspects in your matches? Very much. Um, I thought originally when I first started, I was a big Goldberg fan um, because I played football. He played football, and then I realized when it comes down to wrestling, Goldberg's best part of it was his entrance. I about summed up the best part of his matches. Yeah. Um, but there was this dude who's real smaller than everybody else, but he'll super kick people's faces and then grin real crappily, but the girls were going insane for him. They called himself Shawn Michaels the Heartbreak Kid. And so, literally, that was the guy that I started like, okay, I was going to emulate myself after Goldberg, but now that I realize there's really nothing as much to emulate as there is with Shawn Michaels. So Shawn Michaels had the same beliefs you loved him to make uh, very cocky, very snide, very sure of himself. But one thing that I took from him is that when it was time for him to put on even when he was a bad guy or when he was beating somebody up, you could tell he was having fun 
in the ring and with people around him winking at the girls and blowing kisses. He was having fun. And so that's what I actually took the most. And I probably, I got, and they always said, like, yeah, you just keep smiling the whole time you're in. I'm like, yeah, I'm beating the hell out of some guy. And so it should be fun to me. And I'm getting a reaction out of this girl and that girl. I can do anything I want. And I get a book. And I get some sort of reaction out of these people. So that's what I kind of want to get out of him. It's just he was legit just having fun. And when you see somebody having fun, you can't help but have a little bit of the fun. It just kind of contagious. When somebody smiles, you kind of want to smile back. But I, I feel anxious when people cry around me because it's harder not to get emotional when you have these people crying. It, it, it emotions are contagious. And I saw Shawn Michaels was having so much fun in there. I wanted to be in there having fun all the time, and the crowd was having fun because they were catfishing off of him. So that's one thing that had Shawn Michaels that I just saw. He was so showmanship. He could do all this other stuff. But everything was in his facials and how he put together a match. And his, his fun was just contagious. Yep. That's one thing I got I, I know last night in the opening, LL Cool J actually did a pretty decent job, I thought, but he, he really put over how the fans are what makes the sport, and like you just said, that emotion. Um, last night there was one of the matches, I can't remember which one it was, but um, after the match they showed the fans and like somebody turned behind themselves and just high-fived somebody, and it was like, that's what it's all about, dude, just getting getting people, you know, last night 76,000 people all there to enjoy this event, and uh, you're going to get a, a, a bevy of emotions, and, and when you get people to react in the same way or, or differently, but some people share it, I think that's what it's really all about, and like you said, emotion is contagious, and... Um, we, we want to give people a roller coaster ride when, when you're in the ring and um, make them love you, hate you, uh, everything. Um, now, you started out as a heel, I'm guessing, then with, uh, with your boss there. It, was there a moment in which you could make that turn to become a baby face? Uh, there was, and it was really because of the fans. There wasn't, uh, hey, I did anything different, but I was just a heel, and I was just really in my mind and from the whole company standpoint I was one of their strong heels and I thoroughly enjoyed being the bad guy like, like I said normally I feel like I didn't realize I'm, well, I'm a pretty decent dude I just I don't go out and surround hit people or what but that's a chance for me to be someone that I'm completely not and hit on any single girl that I want to make fun of the any guy because he looked at me funny I love being heels I was a heel for a long time but then I had some friends who started to show up to some of the shows. Like, oh, wow, this is really cool. So all of a sudden, it started becoming cool to cheer the bad guy. Well, that got more and more contagious. And in a wrestling crowd, you have one person that starts to chant, and the rest of however many thousands of people are starting to chant that same chant because this one person started. People are followers. They're like sheep, unfortunately. But fortunately, at the same time. Um, so they started cheering me, and then all of a sudden now, whenever I start walking out, I'm getting cheered, but I'm over here telling you how much I had a good time with your girlfriend last night, and that you hate me, and I'm, you should be jealous of me, and yet you're cheering me, so we got really to the point where, well, guys, we're going to have to make the change. So it was the fans that made me turn into a good guy. Um... And it's a natural thing when that happens, and it's not a booking decision. It's a it's a natural ebb and flow of um, 
what you're doing because in reality they're just cheering your hard work and they're cheering the character that you're putting out there um and you you put together something that they they like and then sometimes you catch strike or catch lightning in a bottle and and get to run with it um was that kind of how things worked out for you was it a quick change or was it slowly built how did that work out it was um, I, there was a, there was a couple of guys that showed up that started to cheer me and then it just got louder every, every show until four months in we're like, okay guys, it, it, you can't ignore it anymore. Like I just kicked this guy in, in the nuts, got disqualified, but I got cheered. Like that's not something normally you would cheer something for. I'm supposed to be a bad guy, but no, the fans just wanted to cheer me and they, Give the fans what they want um, at the right time. <laughs> um, you give the fans what they want. And it, it, it happened, I don't want to say fast, but it wasn't exactly slow either. Um, but the fans just kept cheering, and so we eventually just, all right, we got to do this. And I, that, I agree with you 100%. The fans, you might catch lightning in a bottle. Um, since WWE tough enough, He's the Stone Cold Steve Austin. He gave me his contact information. We've had multiple conversations, and he loves telling the story. But I mean, he just came one day. He said Stone Cold 316 or Austin 316 says, "I just whooped your ass." And then the next day, there's flyers or um, giant posters that says Austin 316. All of a sudden, now he has a whole new gimmick or a whole new attitude or a whole new something to work off that the fans literally just gave to him on a golden platter and he ran with it now he's one of the best in WWE slash wrestling history. Yep. All because the fans gave it to him on something that he just said out of his mouth that was something like, hey, if this awesome 316 stuff is really going to get over, I swear. So let me just say in this promo then we'll totally change everything. Nah, he just said that just because here's the promo. He just said it. He just had no attention. That is going to completely change the career. The fans, without the fans, there is no wrestling. you got to listen to the fans. The fans, again, sometimes the fans, fans make us all the stars either way. So sometimes they just give it to you amazingly. So awesome 316 is one example. Absolutely, uh, you know that's the that is really the example. And you look back at some of the real great heel face changes, and um, you know obviously the Hogan uh, change comes to mind. Even the Savage change back in '89, um, and you know some of these things are just great. Bret Hart's change, uh, you know his turn at, at WrestleMania with Steve Austin. It was you know that was magnetic because it really gave him some more life and um, helps you as a performer um, put together some different stuff in your repertoire. Did you notice that wrestling as a face compared to a heel changed some of the stuff that you did in terms of moves outside of just the emotional stuff that you were doing? Very much so because a lot of the stuff I was trying to be as blatant as possible to everybody but the referee that I'm cheating. Like, when I'm doing, I was wrestling. So now all of a sudden, I'm the guy that has to be the good guy. I'm the one that's supposed to be keeping the rules. That changed a lot of my rules there. And then so now I'm trying to, but at the same time, this whole time, I was trying every single move that I could see on TV or see on Nintendo 64, WCW Revenge, and No Mercy. Any sort of move that you went, I went out on my, like, I was out there trying it just so I could say they did it. So I've done so many moves. Now I go back and watch the match. So I'm like, man, I totally 
totally forgot I did that move. Now, if you look at my matches, I'm like, I don't do crap. I just smile a lot. And every once in a while, I drop kicks on his face off like that. It's just crazy to think about how move-oriented I was back in the day, trying all these different things and not having any sort of consistency with it whatsoever versus now, where I don't even, like, okay, I think about moments in matches. Uh, Tom Howard talk, uh, talks to me about moments versus movesets. And I think that completely changed a lot of the way I even put together matches. Um, especially for TV, because in, in TV shows, you never know what camera's going to catch that or who's going to look right at your face during this certain time. But TV, a lot of times, they can catch that, and we watch it back and see, like, oh, my gosh, that guy's big and angry face made this whole moment way better. So, yeah, things definitely changed. I went from me from, from a bad, bad guy to a good guy. Uh, bad guy's so much more fun. And there's, I know, did you enjoy it being bad guy a lot more? I don't know if we can use heel or heel face terms or whatever. Yeah. Wow. Everybody is, but not you. Did, did you enjoy face? Or did you like heel? But I, I liked, I liked the natural flow that I got to do. Um, I wore a shirt to the ring that said, "I'm better than you." And there we go. And uh, it was a black shirt with a white lettering. And when it came down to it, uh, it was a natural thing because I just went out there and worked my ass off. And I remember even when I turned babyface, it was natural. They just said, all right, we're going to have you wrestle a, a heel tonight and see what you can do. And I walked out to the ring with a beer because somebody said, hey, you kind of look like James Storm. And uh, I said, okay, well, let's see what happens. You know, he, he uses the beer gimmick right now. Let's just walk it out because in La Crosse, Wisconsin, everybody likes beer. So when uh, when I walked out there with it, man, people loved it. The girls loved it, you know. If, if you can get the girls cheering for you, everybody else is going to do it too. And, uh, right. you know, it wasn't it wasn't Stone Cold-esque of, like, pouring beer all over my face. It was just walking out and cheersing people, you know, and then, you know, just talking shit in the ring and saying, hey, this is how it's going to be. Um, I remember my favorite line was, these people either love me or hate me, but they all respect me. And you just take that into the ring and um, – my turning point was a bull rope match in which I got my ass beaten and I ended up winning the whole, you know, I ended up getting my ass beat the entire, you know, 15 minutes of the match. And then I ended up winning and, uh, it was against a much larger guy and ended up being the turning point for me. And that was my, you know, real big switch. And, uh, after that, you know, uh, it, it just flew. And, um, it was a great opportunity after that to just change up some of my movesets. And um, I still did some of the heel stuff, like doing the fish hook and <laughs> things like that, you know, things that when you're wrestling somebody, they don't like. But uh, it, it worked out pretty well for me. I enjoyed both, um, primarily the heel because you can just do so much more in terms of, uh, you know, talking rather than as a baby face where you're just kind of really trying to get the crowd into it. Um, right. But uh, Ric Flair once said, that Ricky Steamboat will never be the greatest wrestler of all time because he never worked heel. Um, and he said, you've got to be able to do both in order to be the greatest. And I don't, I don't necessarily know if I agreed with it at the time, but as I've seen it more, um, I have to kind of slightly agree that you've got to be able to make the fans love you and hate you and then love you again um, in order for it really to be uh, as magnificent as possible. What would you say to that? That's interesting. Um, 
I actually kind of agree with that, and that's the way you put it there. Um, and you changed my mind as you were saying it. So, uh, yeah, he, he is, I think, one of the best, greatest wrestlers of all time. However, he was really good at making people love him. That's where it, that's where it ended. And so Hulk Hogan made people love him, then hate him, then love him back again. So yeah, I actually kind of agree with you right there. I, I actually very much agree with that. Um, but I'm not going to discredit him whatsoever. But damn, I actually kind of agree. With that. <laughs> yeah, I owe nothing against Ricky Steamboat by any means. I mean, in terms of, I always say you can't measure everybody on the same scale. Um, in terms of a character, you know, that's a whole different thing. The Undertaker, in my opinion, is the greatest character in the history of professional wrestling. In terms okay, of... you think we're going to have this exact same conversation in 30 years with John Cena never trying to Exactly. And then you look at work rate, um, a guy like Ricky Steamboat, a guy like Ric Flair, a guy like Shawn Michaels, those would be some of your top guys. If you look at promo work, you look at Roddy Piper... His promo was one of the best. And then, you know, but was he the greatest in-wing worker? Not so much. Was he the greatest character? Not so much. But did he have this other intangible that made him um, step up his game a little bit more? Um, in terms of overall greatness, um, some of my favorites would definitely be CM Punk and Stone Cold Steve Austin. I thought that they, they took their game to the next level at times in which they needed to um, and obviously, you look at guys like Hogan and Brett um, and Sean, you know, they, they all did great things. But to me, those those two are guys that uh, are a lot alike, but they also stick out simply because that's kind of my attitude on, on a lot of things, too. They stuck up for what they believed in and, and really went out there to do the absolute best every single night. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and I think Macho Man is someone in the ring that can hold up with anybody, but at the same time, he had amazing promo work. Bret Hart, I think, is way better technically. Coming from Stu, from the, the school there, but I'd rather watch him much more than Randy Savage than a Bret Hart promo any day. Yep. So, and, and I, in my conversations with Steve Austin, he's like, "Oh, I'm not going to say I'm a good in-ring worker at all, but he's a fan like me." Well, that's kind of true. I, I when I'm looking at Shawn Michaels versus Stone Cold Steve Austin, I think Shawn Michaels can. Run circles just about around everybody. Mm-hmm. But Bill Cole Steve Austin is the icon. And I, and I, and I, and I I'm not sure. I don't know, know which one to put above each other, but Bill Cole Steve Austin, Austin can entertain people far by, by just holding the microphone and having a beer. Um, and he got, got people still. He's been out of wrestling for how long? He's still here the other day. And I was like, yeah, just give me Steve Weiser. Like, Okay. <laughs> it, it's it's one of those things that just doesn't die, and um, I I just look back at some of those guys, and we talked about Gino Hernandez earlier. Uh, one of the I read this quote by him one time, and it it, it had to do with his wrestling career because he died young, um, but he said that I've done more in professional wrestling at the age of like twenty one or twenty five. It was some young number than most men will ever do in their entire careers. And, uh, you know, live in the fast lane like that. And um, you look at a guy like that, you know, how how high could the, the ceiling had been for him? Um, and, you know, some of those missed opportunities. And, and that's what I think... Um, you know, you try to capitalize on... Uh, and and that's, what, that's what I wanted to lead to our next question here. Um, 
your now the last time that we spoke, your role in UCW was um, more of a business partner. And were you doing anything creative with the company at that point? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't remember exactly what time we uh, time when we were talking last because we've been talking for geez, we've been doing trash for a little bit longer now. Well, because, yeah, it was when your when your leg was broke is the last time that um, that we got to meet one another. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay. Um, yes, that's 2011. Was that five years now? So yeah. So six years now. Um, yeah, so after that, my main focus after I break my leg was to get back to the ring as fast as possible. And after I did that, I kind of went into uh, some backstage stuff where I started doing a little bit more of the booking and just running more practices and taking care of the day-to-day stuff rather than just showing up doing my magic now, so... I, I, that's what, I mean, that's why, honestly, why I'm here today is I love booking. I love the creative aspects. I think, you know, in our conversations, especially, and we're going to talk about Paul here in a second, um, but that's what brought me and him together. Um, it, it was, it was my mind for, I really, I mean, I love the WWE. I love the product, but I also love trying to make it better in some way, shape, form, or fashion. Um, and that's why I have the Low Blow Booking Podcast. I, I, we go back and we look at shows and, and change things up for hopefully the better. Um, but that's really what drives me in in this realm of, of wrestling. Is there Were there opportunities that you got to take in creative um, where you were able to do some of those things? Yeah, and because um, here the reason I became part of it is uh, twofold. One, uh, it's when I was getting through the show every day, I saw the match and I was like, well, why am I wrestling this guy? Well, why am I not wrestling that guy? It doesn't make any sense. And now you guys are, they got to the point where I was coming back from tough enough and they put me, they, had, they took me out of that show in a very good light. So whoever edited that, I've met you before. Uh, but thank you very much because you made me look like a superhero. Um, but you take me out of that show like a superhero, so you're not going to make me a bad guy right off the bat. Um, so I was a good guy, and then they made me, a, then we needed a bad guy, so they made me a bad guy, and somebody else stepped up, and then so, like, two months later, I was a good guy again, I'm like, well, I can't see any business switches, but this is getting to the point where I'm confused whether I'm good or bad, so the fans could be all sorts of things. So this needs to change, plus with me, and I don't know if this is you too, but in most wrestlers, this is what it's like, you're your, you're your worst critic. So what I like to do, is every single time I have a match, I like to find a way to get it recorded so that on the drive home or when I get home that night, I can record and like, I didn't like this, I didn't like that. I could have done this a little bit different. And what I set up at UCW was there was really not a great way to do that. There was a couple cameras here, so I went out and researched and made basically our audio and video production department I created it so now we got back like live editing and stuff so I have an edited product by the time I get back home from the show I just went like just spent my money and learned and trying to figure out this RC Willie duct tape piece of audio video equipment stuff that made that happen so I could do that uh, and it was, that's why I got backstage all that is I set up that audio video equipment so I could critique myself and then I started getting into booking um, and by that time I had done some TV stuff so I had a little bit more experience and so now, now I'm teaching guys about 
they work the hard cam, stuff like that. Uh, and when, when you first start wrestling, depending on where you're at, there's no TV. Uh, there may not be hard cam that you use not work. Yep. Uh, but just learning, and you know too, learning the stuff in the back, I'm like, okay, now I understand. Like, yeah, it's just a whole new respect for the guys that don't get enough credit in my mind. Because superstars get all sorts of fame and accolades, but the guys that set up the ring every single day in the WWE, uh, the guys that do the editing, the guys that do the music, the guys that do all, they don't get enough credit for sure, because without them, there's not a wrestling show either. Yeah. I think, like you just said, uh, when you go and you look at the booking sheet and you say, why am I wrestling this guy? What's the story? Um, I, I got in so much trouble. Every time I'd get to an arena, and I would try to do it beforehand, and I'd try to talk to the guy and say, you know, who am I wrestling and what's the story, like like we just said. And, you know, I remember one time I had a really hard sell because I just turned, and they wanted me to lose to another baby face. I was like, you guys are missing a, an opportunity here. And, uh, you know, I I had to play the po- politics game and say, we, we're going to have a good match, but you're going to kill my character. You can't have me, you know, christen this new character, turn babyface, and then get my ass whooped every week. Um, it's not going to work. And, uh, you know, and luckily they, they were able to see some of my side of the story. Perhaps I was hard to work with at times, but I felt so, uh, so you know, important on this is what you have to do in order to make these things work. And um, I always thought that my creativeness in wrestling and in gimmicks and in stories was always um, a lot better uh, than, than some. And um, I just never had the capital to say, all right, well, I'm going to run my own wrestling promotion and do that, you know, because that costs a lot of money. Um, it does. Yeah. And honestly, because you shut down, I don't think I ever was. I, I like and I, I like the being in the ring far more than the day stuff. I'm glad I did it. Yeah, and I think that's my that's my aspect. Is um, I ended up breaking my back when I wrestled. I broke my L six, and I yeah I um well just taking bumps. Uh, I mean it could have been anything, but I never knew about it because the muscles had grown over the fracture. So I just would wake up in excruciating pain. Um. You know those those roll things that you can roll your back on um, that oh, athletic yeah, trainers have. Yeah, that that and I used it at your house um, when I came, when I came out there. Paul had one. I said, "Dude, can I use this?" And he's like, "Oh, absolutely!" And I could just feel my back and all the tension just leaving it. Um, I finally went to the chiropractor and I said, "Dude, your back's broken." And uh, I and they said, "Do you know how long it's been broken?" I'm guessing at some point over the last ten years it happened because I hadn't had any back trauma since I quit wrestling. And, uh, you know, that was something, you know, that putting your body on the line and, and giving up, you know, indie wrestlers don't have health care, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I know that my injuries in, in wrestling, I had two broke, broken orbital bones in my face, uh, had my eye socket broken twice, I broke uh, both of my legs once, um, and then, of course, my back, and um, I, I still enjoyed it but what it came down to is i really liked that backstage aspect of it i liked putting together a story so that people could really get hooked into it and uh i've always looked for an opportunity to do that and um that that really led me to getting to know our mutual friend uh paul grosskreitz aka tyler cintron um the first time I met Paul, I was dressed up for Halloween and I was Paris Hilton when she was in prison. Um, 
I had the the prison jumpsuit. I had the blonde wig, the glasses, the purse, and the dog. And uh, he was, of course, dressed as John Cena. Um, and oh, really? Yeah, yeah. We <laughs> imagine Paul being dressed as John Cena. Um, but uh, we we struck it from there, and we've been friends, you know, now for almost. Uh, eight years and talked pretty consistently in that time. What was it like when you met him and what did you see in him? What, where did that relationship start and, and where has it gone since then? Um, well, and then honestly, when, by the time he uh, started, I was doing, I was doing more of all my problems. I wasn't at the day to day practices as much. I hit my, my day, my, Four hours in the rain when I, when I was in town, and I'd be hitting the next show in another town. So I didn't get to be part of the actual conversation on getting trained. But then I'd get back and I'd check in with certain people, like, hey, so how's it going here? Da, da, da. Um, and I just kept hearing about this kid. It's like, yeah, this guy, he's catching on really quick. He's charismatic, though. And uh, I think. They're like, yeah, he's going to be the show here pretty quick. I'm like, all right, cool. That, that sounds awesome. And uh, then I met him. And he, he, obviously, you know, he's a great guy. So, and he just happens to be one of like, I don't want to say a prodigy because then he'll get a big head about it. Yeah, he's already but, got a big enough head. Let's be serious. Yeah, he's got a big enough head. Um, but he was one of those guys that just had something different when they came in to wrestling because he hasn't been in the business. 10 years or anything like that, like us old, some of us old folks are. Um, but uh, he, he was in the business for a short time, and by that time, he'd been traveling more than some of the guys that had been in the business a little bit longer and just didn't want it as much as he did um, or didn't feel... It takes a certain level of confidence, I think, to go to a completely different state, drive 12 hours or a completely different state, go into a locker room where everyone does the same thing, but you're the outsider, and go shake every single person's hand in the locker room uh, and figure out uh, a match, whoever you're going to wrestle. Um, it takes a certain kind of outgoing charisma. It, it takes a certain set of balls, I think, as well. You can't be an introvert very well and be a very good professional wrestler that gets out there. I have a quick question. Um, yeah. The, the wrestler handshake, do you do it? I get it, but I do it. Oh man, I you know, and I started messing with people as I started wrestling more and getting pretty good at at things. I was pretty snug, um, and I always had people come up and say, "Man, you guys really hit each other." I said, "Yep, we do." And uh, and uh, I remember going and going to these shows in uh, Wisconsin and Minnesota, and people I didn't know, and I'd shake their hand really hard and just smile at them. <laughs> I was always a jerk about it, but then I tell him I'm not like that. You know, I, I I just want to shake your hand and let you know I'm a good guy. And um, <laughs> I always thought it was funny. I always thought I, that was good. I did too. And, and in my mind, um, I am a stockbroker besides my, what I do in the restaurant. So in business, you shake your hand, shake your hand like, like a man. You shake, like, hey, I'm here. I'm doing here in your business. I was always, I, and I, I was a wrestler in high school, so I had a really strong hand. So I tried to make a point of it and squeezing the shit out of their hands a little bit. Sorry if I'm swearing my best. But uh, shaking their hands pretty hard so they know, like, okay, this guy, it puts a first impression into you. The second you see somebody, you may automatically form an opinion. First thing that comes out of their mouth, you form an opinion. And the first time you touch them in any sort of way, you form a different opinion. So 
So between the three senses there, I wanted to make sure that handshake was tough as hell. But then I figured out the wrestling handshake, and I hated it with my passion. Uh, but I was I didn't know enough in the business to know if I go in there shake hands that I I wouldn't be able to recover from the heat. That, you know, I think I'm not even the yeah. So, and I do it, I hate it, but yeah. until someone like The Undertaker or someone like that tells me anything different that has been in the older school now, yeah. I'm probably not going to change it. So. <laughs> I, and for those of you that don't know, um, if you have a firm handshake in the world of at least indie pro wrestling, um, that means that you are a stiff worker. If you have a limp handshake, that means that you are, uh, you know, you're not going to hurt anybody. Um, and I think that you and I can both agree it's probably one of the more frowned upon things in, in our opinion. But um, And I remember watching Hacksaw Jim Duggan say one day, he just bad-mouthed the shit out of it. <laughs> it was hilarious. But, um, you know, it's it's one of those things. And, you know, you have to conform to stuff sometime. And uh, so, again, let's get back to, the, to Paul here um, and, you know, his character of Tyler Cintron, him and I. Um, worked a little bit on some of the stuff that, that became that, and he obviously took it and ran. Um, how were your first matches with him when you got the opportunity to work with him? They've always... Here's the thing that bugs me, is me and him have always had good matches, but I know the level of match that I can put on. I've put on good matches in my career. I've seen him put on five-star matches. I don't think in my mind, because I know what he can do, I know what I can do, that we've had the match both of us have been looking for out of each other. We've had good matches from what we from what we watched, but I don't think that me and him, at least in my mind, and yeah, he may think we had a great match, I don't know. But in my mind, I, I don't think me and him have pulled the, the match that we want out of each other. Mm-hmm. Which is crazy, because... I've been in the business for a little bit. He's damn good at what he's doing. Um, and there's no reason to not have a, a, a stellar match. But I do not know, like, we've had good ones, but I know there's this one match that's going to be, that was my favorite, and it hasn't happened yet. I, so, yeah. probably sent you on a case you're listening to this podcast. I know we're friends, but one of these times we should just go to blows, just... I think that's what we all strive for too. I know that my best matches were against a guy that I was a tag team partner with, Devlin Kane, and uh, I mean we'd go out there and beat the living piss out of each other, and we knew that we weren't going to hurt each other. Um, the closest that I came was uh, we were have that bull rope match, and I I made a, a, a shiv. And I put it in my boot, and I and I pulled it out, and I came really damn close to poking his eye out. Uh, but he he gave me a nice receipt when he hit me in the face with the cowbell. Um, and no, ladies and gentlemen, I don't put my hand up in the in the air, you know, to stop that thing. That that cowbell hit me that. right in the fucking mush. Um, yeah, I hate that. <laughs> but that's what it is, man. You you go out there and you you feel you feel protected by that guy, and um and that's what you do. You build that relationship with them, and. And that's why, you know, things work out and you end up having great matches with those people. But you're always wanting that, that better one. And um, 
I don't know where if I will ever get a chance to wrestle again, but that's definitely what I'd like. I've always wanted to wrestle against Tyler. I did get to wrestle with him. Um, we got to do a tag team match, and that was fun. Um, I still don't think it was my best match due to this, that, or the other. But um, the first time he got into a ring, I took him to Black River Falls, Wisconsin, and we were wrestling, and they didn't put a real tarp down for the mat, and I ended up breaking my leg. And uh, I still wanted to get in there because I broke it like we had probably three hours of training. I broke it at like the second hour, iced it up, and still tried to get back in there and wrestle, and it just wasn't working. <laughs> but uh, I, 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 yeah, exactly. So let's talk about that feeling. Um, tough enough. WWE brought it back. They were going to give it a spot on the USA Network. They were bringing in Stone Cold Steve Austin to be the man. Now they put out the casting call. Um, and I don't know if you can divulge all the information, but did you have to go through that same process, or were you somebody on a short list that was uh, contacted before that? Um, I had to still go through that process. Yes, I was still on a list, um, because what happened was I got contacted via Facebook. No joke. Um, so I see all these guys around me, like, hey, I gotta put my profile and video on this site, and then I ask people to vote, I'm like, I, I don't know if I want to do that, uh, I just think that's weird to have people vote for me to be on a television show, um, especially with the aura around reality TV, then it's all fake anyway, um, so, but I was on this list, I had contacted on Facebook, so guys like, hey, I'm plus such and such, um, you're on a list from the WWE of people that we should be contacting uh, to let you know that you should probably submit your information. Uh, they, they were just like, just to give it a shot. And then, so I sat there for like three days, I tried to write, didn't write them back, so I'm like, so trying to punk me or something. Like, someone's just, like, messing with my head. Then I started thinking about it. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Uh, if you get a Facebook message, and it really is somebody from a production company or something, and I don't reply, and I don't go, and I always wonder, what if? That would suck. Oh, absolutely. So, hey, you know, <laughs> yeah, right? It would suck. <laughs> and, little no, it was actually somebody with me being on a list from WWE people who got stuff with the WWE. I did extra work by the time I had a tryout in 2007, um, back with FCW. So I'd done stuff with the WWE, knew who I was. Um, but it's still random. We get a Facebook message and not say, hey, go to the site and make people vote for you. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I made a video and I did a couple of interviews and I sent it to them all. And it's like, yeah, hey, well, they really liked your interview. Uh, that we, I had with you, so I want you to send in a video, just just kind of highlighting who you are. So I send that in, and it was like, it was a several week process to finally get a phone call. It's like, hey, yeah, no, uh, you're doing really good, actually. We're taking, uh, we're going to make more decisions, and we might bring you down to California for a week to mm, see if we can nail it down in Final 14. I'm like, holy crap. Yeah, so I had to go through that whole process. And I guess there's like a hundred some people that went down to the hotel for a week and they narrowed it down and the rest is history, I guess, because you saw me on TV. Yeah, let, well, let's talk about that history. So you get the you get the call or the talk to be able to do this. Um, what are those first days like where you uh, meet the other cast members 
you kind of relocate yourself. You can't tell anybody anything, even though, um, long story short, Paul Grossgreitz, Tyler Sunshine, you little son of a bitch, you let me know. Um, so I was definitely checking it out to see what was going on. Um, what, uh, what was that like, man? I mean, you're completely, you're getting an opportunity that what, you know, 14 people, right? Is that how many there were? That's right. Yeah. So you've, you've got a chance of one in, one in, you know, a million almost when it comes down to it of, of people that get a chance to do this and you get to work with stone cold. What was those first days like? I mean, cloud nine honeymoon and what, what was it like for you? I, I really don't think it, I don't even think it was surreal that entire time what, what was going on until months and months after the surgery and everything was over. Um, like, so we, uh, we stayed down there for a week when they were narrowing it down to the final 14. You literally couldn't leave your room. They wouldn't even give you a key. Somebody locked you up, let you in your room. If you left your room, you're screwed. Like, they didn't want people screwing around. So you're stuck in your room. So finally, the girl comes up to us with a camera and says, hey, you made the top 14, and so I'm ecstatic. So then I, I finally get in the bus, and you sit and look at 13 other people well, 12, because they didn't have Miss USA there until later. Uh, they had 12 other people driving us to the mansion, but they said, you can't talk to each other. I know this is your competition, and that's what it was. And I'm like, this is the guy that I had to out wrestle. But you can't talk to each other because the cameras aren't on while we're in the bus. So you can't talk to each other. And, of course, we tried as much as we could to not get caught, but we tried as much as we could to talk to. <laughs> surreal because now I'm like, is this really happening? Because I'm in a bus and there's just people that I don't know. Um, I'm in California and we're driving to a giant mansion. Okay. So then we finally get there. No, I think the first time we went was raw. And I've done extra work plenty of times at raw. But they walk us through and I've never walked down the ramp. And so this is the first time being, so I've been in a gorilla position before, which for those fans who don't know, that's right before you go out that curtain and you're out there in front of the millions of people watching WWE Raw. I've been on that side of the curtain just feet from it, but I've never actually walked myself through that curtain and walked down the ramp. So finally, we're all there. They didn't, they have us walk through there. So now all of a sudden, I'm kicking out like a 10-year-old kid. Um, and then I look down the ramp, and they have us walk down the ramp, and you got Stone Cold Steve Austin there in the middle of the ring and basically introducing himself to you and the whole time I'm thinking like this really isn't happening I like don't do anything stupid just think don't like one foot in front of each other don't fall on your face in front of everybody uh it was surreal it was, the whole thing was surreal like that that's how the first thing is my first time walking down the ramp I've been around hundreds of times before that it's my first time walking on the ramp and my first time meeting Stone Cold Steve Austin and then uh they had Pyro going it was crazy and then they started immediately whooping the shit out of us. Like, I'm sorry, I keep swearing. But they had us do a bunch of work back there during the raw while it was happening. Um, and it was weird because you're trying to talk to each other. Now, they finally, once the camera started, you got to work. And they were sitting there trying to talk to as many people as possible, trying to figure out who these people were. What does my competition look like? Because you have no idea who these people are. And so I see, I figured out I had, like, Ariana was a girl who'd never wrestled a day in her life. And that's how somebody else named Matt Cross who's been in 14 different countries by the time we're here. I'm like, all right, buddy. I have all sorts of competition here. It's the whole thing was surreal. Just think about it. The way I think I put it out to people is people go out, get the PlayStation 4s, 
to get WWE2K, whatever, and then they have that mode where you walk around backstage and you bump into John Cena, you jump, you bump into this guy, you bump into that guy. That's what it was like to me. Because I've been there a million times, but I never met Stone Cold. I never walked down the ramp. And now I have a camera following me. But at the same time, it's competition mode. So I have to figure out who the heck these guys are and who's going to be my main competition. Mm-hmm. It was surreal, and I had to keep thinking, this is a competition. You're not Stone Cold Steve Austin. You're my trainer. Yep. So long story short, surreal, crazy, but I had to just keep thinking, this is a competition. <laughs> if you want this to end, start Mark out and be crazy. And I was actually going to tell you, I think that what um, your uh, what's the right way I'm going to say this, and I don't mean it to be rude if it comes out that way, but but your lack of marksmanship, if you will, is what allowed you to be so successful on that show. Um, and even when, because I didn't I didn't know you at that time, and and Paul and I were talking and um and about you know your chances and stuff like that and. Uh, I think that, you know, after watching it, it's like you didn't let yourself get caught in the moment of, you know, kind of like even I say that I try not to, but shit, Stone Cold Steve Austin's in front of me. I'm going to, you know, get a little giddy. But the um, the fact that you were there to do work and, uh, you know, make the most of this opportunity, I think that's what brought you to that next level and, um, and, and going through the competitions and, and being, I mean, you were the front runner. Uh, and then it kind of came crashing down. So let's talk about the process up until the the break, and and what were your experiences like with the group, with the trainers, um, and, and was it something that you'll always be able to look back on? Um, is there anything that you would like to change? Um, honestly, there would be. I would wish I was a little bit more outgoing and kind of living by the moment and almost because I kind of in order to do that where okay I'm not talking to Stone Cold Steve Austin I'm talking to a trainer I'm not talking to a stress I'm talking to a trainer I'm not talking to Bill I'm, I'm, I, in my mind okay this is my high school wrestling coach Yep. so uh, you gotta listen to him he knows what he's doing um, and so that's kind of how I went about it and I, I did, there was very few times when I was sitting in that mansion where I took a step out of myself and Dude, you're in a multi-million dollar mansion. Everything that you do is being watched right now by going to be millions of people. Stone Cold Steve Austin is asleep right now waiting for a gummy waking up and you can talk to him first thing in the morning. Uh, and hey, literally I can ask for anything right now and they should see it because like, hey, I need energy drinks. They got, they filled us full of energy drinks. Like, there was very few times where I sat out of myself and just took in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be the one thing that I was changing because I was just thinking about winning the competition um, and what would be better for me and uh, very little time to actually sit and enjoy enjoy the whole process I think the one time that I finally just let it go was when I won the third competition in a row um, Luke Robinson was all sorts of pissed off because now everyone's like oh you're the man you're the man you're the man and then all of a sudden they're looking at me a little bit. Um, so he's all pissed off, which honestly made me feel kind of good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin asked, hey, isn't this like a third time living? I'm like, yeah, it's my third. Well, good job. He just shakes my hand up under everybody. I'm like, all right, I'm feeling pretty, pretty good right now. Yep. So that was the only time I was able to step out. I'm like, I feel fantastic right now. 
and you guys are seeing me with you. Well, I want to interview and just be excited about where my position at that spot. But that'd be the one thing I would take away. And we, there are wrestlers, we keep thinking about what's going to be the next thing. How can I be better that we don't actually, in my mind, just let it sink in. Well, I think that's the thing, too. I mean, you're when you're in that position, you're always trying to, and like we talked about, you're your biggest critic. What can I do to be better? I mean, there is no okay. You have to be better at every point in time, and um, and you prove that on the show. I mean, you you put yourself ahead of everybody, and then you had this had this event. Uh, walk us through how your leg was broke, the circumstances, what what it came down to, and, and what you're going like physically and mentally. Well, so what happened is what we normally did, and it was a complete mind game this whole time because they didn't say, okay, tomorrow at 10 o'clock we're going to go to training. They just had one PA guy um, or personal assistant guy come down and say, okay, you guys ready? Let's go. And if you weren't down in the kitchen at that time, you're up in the restroom or you're up in the reading, you, you'd miss out. And then that'd be great TV because then you'd get yelled at and be blamed for being late. They never gave you a time. So it was a mind screw. Like, okay, kind of got to be around here. You know, it's 6 o'clock in the morning because you never know if they're going to show up at 7. They say go to training or at noon. They say go to training. So it's the big mind screw. Just kind of waiting for the day to start. Um, and then we had our two, three, four-hour training, wherever it was. I think it's three, three-and-a-half-hour training. Um, we had a training. We took a break. And he went back and did it. A training, but then what happened was, is they said, okay, well, you guys all had a pretty rough day. Like, people were just screwing up, they were forgetting to the spots, they were hitting, it was just, you know, sometimes you have bad off days. And so, all right, we're going to have a night training. Crap. And these weren't easy, like, smile at this angle for this camp. These were like, they kicked the crap out of you. Uh, so, when they said, hey, we had a bad day, so we're going to do it again tonight. Everyone's mood was just kind of down. And then uh, we went into our night training. We went there, um, and literally we were just doing the drills, and everyone was doing a lot better than I were before. The mood's going up. And then we did a pin drill. Literally one guy lays down there, uh, and there's a line behind. You just you jump on, you pin him, he kicks out, and the next guy goes. You pin him, he kicks out, you roll out, and you get back to the line. Like, it's not a hard drill at all. Mm-hmm. Not because it's not because it's a magic drill. You can do that day one of training. Um, but I was the one that I jumped on top of Mary the line. I pinned him. He kicked out. I walked towards the rope so I could get out of the ring. And then I felt this cock and a giant sting in my leg. So I rolled out, got back in line. And I don't know what it was. I think I'll give me just twisted it or something. I'll just have something taped up tomorrow. Um, I went in there and we did like two more drills. And I think every time I started walking in there, I was doing the drills, but all of a sudden now I put my pressure on one leg and now I can't do that anymore. So now I'm hopping out on one leg doing these drills. And then finally it got to the point where a lot of more people were screwing up and they had to sit down and build them up. I had a giant yell at you session where he said, basically, do you know what kind of opportunity you guys have? And it was a great speech. And like everybody, like, yeah, this is a great opportunity. But the whole time I'm rubbing my ankle, like, this is a good, this is a good, this is a good. 
can we go do it in the training case? So what they didn't show this whole time, we took them tough enough. I'm sorry, I go off my stories about this because this was the martial shit. That's, that's what people want to hear, man. Everybody that, that talked to me, they said, talk about tough enough, and then we're going to get to the other big one here in a couple minutes. Yeah. No, I go off on this. People, they, they didn't show this at all. They, they showed me walk away and it doesn't snap and you see me roll out and then it shows to like an hour and a half later but I actually went in there hopped in and did like two more drills then we got yelled out for about 10 minutes then we went back in and did the, did the drill I rolled out and then Bill started came over and talked to me and that's where it cut to it cut out the part where I tried two more times then it cut out the part where me and Bill had a little bit of a riff going back and forth he's like you alright? Yeah, man, I'm fine. Don't try and be a hero here. There's no heroes here. Like, no, I'm fine. Sit, sit, stand on both feet. Can you stand up on both feet? And I stood up and he's like, well, actually, stand on one foot. I, I couldn't stand up on one foot. He's like, sit down. Get the chain to look at you right now. So I'm swearing because I know for a fact they send me to the doctors. I don't know what's wrong with it. I don't want to have them have any sort of excuse to send me home. Yep. And that's when this TV started showing up. That's when it started showing up. Me, I'm like talking with Bill. I'm talking with Steve. You know, that's what happened. Because he's like, I don't know. I'm like, I don't know. Um, so the trainer takes it off. It's really popped up real big. And I'm like, I'm fine. Just give me some ibuprofen. Let's wrap it up. Let's go. He's like, no, I really think if you can stand on one foot, that you should go to the hospital real quick. Just get a quick x-ray. Like, I really, and I told him, word for word, I really do not want to do that because if something's wrong with it, you guys aren't going to let me do this again. Well, no. Well, if, like, if you, if you say there's nothing wrong, then, then we don't have to worry about it. There's nothing wrong with it. I highly, highly suggest that you go to the hospital right now. And the girl's like, I, hey, I, if she suggested, I should say do it. Like, go. I don't want to look bad and leave this practice. When we're 80% through it, that's going to look bad at me in the competition, and I don't want to leave and look bad in this competition. Like, no. You know what? If you're not going to get back in the ring today, I want you to go to the hospital right now. So I swear a little bit, and I say, okay, I want to. But I get, in, I get in the van, and I put, I put my hand on my face, and I'm like, this is bad, this is bad. And then I make the, the girl promise me, like, hey, if they say something's wrong with it, I want you to wrap it up so I can't fill it, and you let me continue on. I said, sure, because then they should apply to me, because they knew I was, they can't do it for insurance, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, so I didn't want to go. Anyway, they sent me away, and I'm scared to have my position, because I'm doing really great. I went three in a row, and they just sent me home early for a practice. That's not good. Uh, I go, and they x-ray it, and then they tell me it's broken, and that, they can't let me do it anymore. I can't wrestle anymore. I'm out of the competition. I'm like, no, no. And so one of the producers was with me. I said, I want a second opinion. And then by the time I got to my fourth opinion, because everyone kept saying the damn, same damn thing, uh, they're just said, there's no more doctors left. Every single doctor here in this hospital says, you can't wrestle anymore. There's no one left to give you a second or fifth opinion now. And so... I'm really glad the cameras were back there because I don't think I cried like that since I was like 10. Or, okay, 10, maybe like 2. <laughs> I was, don't I was lie. Crazy. It was 17. There we go. It was yesterday. Um, <laughs> but no, I was, um, 
days they find some like, hey, there's you're out of the competition, so we'll have you go tomorrow. Um, and uh, we'll talk to the guys, we'll let them know you're out of the competition. And so that's when I lost it. Like, no more. I, I have to work straight up, just can you just shoot it up with something so I can feel it? Give me a week and I win this competition. And there wasn't that many more people left, so like, can you give me a little bit, give me a little bit of time, shoot it up, so they wrap it up. Mm-hmm. I've heard of people working with like this, like, like for insurance reasons, I can't let you continue. And uh, like, if we, if we do that, if we shoot you back up, you're not going to be able to walk anymore. I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, well, I heard the dressers, like, they're all messed up, and they go out there and still do their job, they still put on a good show. Is it smart? No, <laughs> but maybe it'll heal. I don't know. But uh, they finally told me that, and that was like four and a half, five, like four and a half hours in the hospital. And then uh, the producer, Eric Van Wagen, came and she said, dude, that sucks so bad. And uh, just, I'm sorry. And then, so they took me to a hotel that night and didn't let me see anybody. And then I just had to sit in that hotel room and just think about it all being over. So that sucked. Um, well, and then something else happened that night. I'm not going to go into that, but it was a great time. Um, but. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can, I, I can only imagine. Um. Something else happened that night. Uh, I was able to hang out with some friends, but, uh, I didn't know we're still there. Um, but and then I ended up going that morning to go, I was just going to tell everybody, okay, like, hey guys, like, out of my stuff. But I, I get to there in front of everyone, like, we pull out to the, to the, like, training facility, and then he's like, okay, so you're going to go in there, and then you're going to tell everybody on camera that, what the doctor told you. I'm like, wait, so I'm going to be on, I thought I was just going to go, like, tell them and what, but they were like, no, you're going to be on TV in, like, two minutes. So I did kind of up, up all night, not able to sleep, and, uh, so I looked like hell. And then I, like, crunched my butt into there, and I had to give an announcement. And then I was legit emotional because, like, I didn't know I was literally going to go in there and say goodbye to everybody right at that time, go on TV in front of everybody. I know Steve Austin has this giant thing where he lets me hang up my own belt um, and then leave and never go back to his compound. I thought it was going to be like, I go in there and say goodbye to everybody, and then we can go on TV. No, it's just... I get there, and, hey, you're coming out to you, too, this is what you can do. I'm like, whoa, okay, I've been up all night, I haven't slept, and uh, you're about to be throw me through some emotional bullcrap that I don't know my turn to stay right now. Yeah. So that's what I did. And I, I think that, you know, many would say that was probably the most emotional moment of the of the show, kind of a defining moment, um, you know, to take a favorite out and, uh, and, not allow you the opportunity to do what um what you were there to do um and then it was rehab time uh and so how much was your phone just ringing off the hook how many offers were you getting after everything happened um when it finally aired you had to leave um you were back at home you know you got your foot in a boot um what was life like after that uh, well, we hadn't been able to get to our phones pretty much the whole time we're there. So, uh, and I told they wouldn't, I, they wouldn't allow us to tell people when we went to the hotel the very first part, hey, we're going to go down there possibly be on WWE stuff. So I lied to everybody that I was helping the brokerage firm opening up a 
stockbrokerage, the stockbrokerage firm in California. And so everyone's just like, man, you, you're just like not answering my phone calls where you're at. So no one knew, except for just a very, very, very select few people. I was one of them. <laughs> <laughs> so all of a sudden I get my phone and I have all those messages. And then I guess while I was there, um, like promos and commercials started coming out and see people like zooming in to see who made the cut. Um, so that's how I get posts on that. And then it finally gets to the point where it was like WrestleMania was three weeks after that. Yeah, because you got um, to go to WrestleMania, correct? Yeah, we went to WrestleMania. Yeah. And then we got introduced at WrestleMania. Um, introduced the day after Raw, and that day after Raw, WrestleMania, that's when WWE Tough Enough started. Yep, that's um, what, I remember that, yep. And I was, and we were filming, it was just a couple weeks before that, where I got injured, before we got done filming, and it was like a week after that was WrestleMania. Um, so it wasn't that much time, so I actually had surgery for my foot, or I was about to have surgery for my foot, like like the day before or the day like a week it was like I was going to have my surgery the next day or something like that um, or I just had it I can't remember but it was like you shouldn't be walking on this and in my mind I went there and like okay we're going to introduce you to the world you're going to, you're going to walk out there with WWE Raw cool so I went out there and we did the rehearsals so I have a camera guys and get to where they want to be and I'm on my crutches and then I'm uh, like well it's and we can't let them know you're hurt, so you're going to have to do it without your crutches. Do you have another shoe? Like, I, I have my other shoe. I, I haven't walked on it without my crutches. Literally, this is before it's been hurt. Uh, but go ahead and try it. I'm like, okay, so I had to do the rehearsals, and you can see, like, this line. We all walked down in the line, and you can see, like, me just getting further and further back because I can't keep up with walking down that ramp with a broken foot. Yep. Um, so finally, the rehearsals, I they threw me in the very back said, okay, we'll do that. But hey, to finally pull me in the bathroom with the trainers and say, is it okay? Like, they have to grab it and give me pain pills or something. Like, there's something so I can, I, I can do tonight. Like, well, hey, I just wanted to bring it up to you that if you don't want to walk out there tonight, then you don't have to because I, I don't want you to get hurt or anything like that. And so, in my mind, I had the opportunity to walk out in WWE Monday Night Raw, walk down the ramp for the second time in my career. This one just happens to be while the cameras are rolling live internationally. Mm-hmm. And you're saying I don't have to do it, but it's my choice. Yep. Like, yeah, you don't have to do it. No, you're going to wrap this thing up. You're going to give me a crazy amount of so I can't feel this. And I'm going to stumble my way out there and make sure I walk out on Monday Night Raw tonight. So, and it was awesome because I walked back there and then I'm walking with my crutches all the way up to gorilla position and I hand it over to them like, you sure you want to do it? I'm like, hell yeah. So I walk out there and I grate my teeth the entire time and I'm out there walking because it hurts like a mother truck. Um, and I had a over here as a proponent of pain pills, but I don't, I know people who abuse those, but I just need to get past that one walkthrough. Um, but, Upgrading my teeth like a mother trucker, but I'm at the same time. That was one of the moments where I was just concentrating so hard on walking and not falling over and making a scene that I wish that I could have sat back and gone out of myself and just thought about, you're walking out on Monday Night Raw live. That was one of the 
what was that? Like, I really wish I was there. But I thought you ended up walking and not falling over. <laughs> yeah, I, like I said, when I broke my leg, I had that same walk uh, to my finals. Um, <laughs> I don't think it was the same same emotional output that you had, but definitely uh, what, what an experience. I, I mean, just, you know, to sit here and listen to it firsthand, um, you know, the, the fan and the competitor and the the – the love for the industry, it's just like, man, I'd give anything for that, that moment. Um, and that opportunity that you had and, and what you could do from it. Um, it, 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 that's just a great thing. And, uh, it's, it's awesome that you got to experience it. I'm, I'm excited because now people get to, to hear your side of the story to it. Um, one thing that is stemmed from tough enough was, uh, Bill DeMott being a trainer down, uh, with NXT and the performance center. Um, in, you know, his subsequent firing due to his behavior. And like you just talked about, there were some times when he was yelling. Um, do you care to share anything on your side of that whole situation of you being somebody that was trained by him? Was it really as bad as people made it out to be? Um, here's the thing. Um, I've been trying to figure out. Well, I was going to go say something, but I decided not to. But now I'm, uh, I'll say it on this interview. Um, at WWE Tough Enough, Bill DeMont was the man who led the trainings, made sure that those trainings were exactly what they were, but made sure that WWE Tough Enough name lived up to it. He was trying to break you. I didn't see him doing anything more than what, in my mind, was one of those 80s tough-nosed trainers, like, Mickey from Rocky Balboa. Yep. That, 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 I never saw him doing anything while I was at WWE Top Top. That was not just a hard-nosed Mickey Trey, hardcore Trey. I didn't see him kicking or doing anything that was out of line. And in, in granted, he would give us all crap for some any sort of reason he could. Yep. And, and I hear about the whole level of slurs, that, 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 but he would just give you crap. And you know, any wrestler gives, or any any dude who has, has a, any sort of bromance or any sort of relationship with another dude, we don't say, hey, bud, how are you? Or we don't, we're not nice to each other. The closer you are with somebody, the meaner you are with somebody. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and uh, with that, he had that same thing. I don't remember specific terms or anything, but he was just one of those hard-nosed trainers that made you really in your mind, decide, I really want this hard enough to keep pushing up. Um, but I never saw anything at WWE Tough Enough that happened that took me off guard of, like, hey, that was inappropriate. And, How, and I think I what you just said, that's 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 why they put him there is to, to get you guys ready to go for this because of how mentally trying that business has become. Um and I, I, I guess I have always wanted – I've never been able to meet Bill DeMott, but I always wanted to get that perspective, especially over the past six months of how everything has gone down of, you know, is this guy really the bully or the, the meanie or is he just a guy that was hired to say, I need to go in here and make people tough enough legitimately um, because of what they're about to get themselves into? And I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm not saying it did. Um, I could definitely, with his hard nosed style – believe that maybe there was times he would have in the WWE Performance Center, but I personally have never saw it. That wouldn't surprise me, but I never saw it 
he always was. He's always been that good, hard-nosed trainer. But I never saw him go out of line when I was with him. Again, I've never been signed to a WWE developmental contract. I have been to the Performance Center at a WWE tryout. How did that go for you? I thought it was fantastic. Um, we, it was very much like WWE Tough Enough, where he tried to break every single person that was there. Um, mentally and physically, and he did. He broke several people there. There's, there's a difference where in WWE Tough Enough, you go home if you quit. At the Performance Center, they were very okay with, with such a side. Um, just catch your breath, da because there's people with zero athletic backgrounds to all sorts of crazy backgrounds. At that time, it was uh, December of December 13, I think. Um, but it was very much like WWE Tough Enough. He, he destroyed you. I didn't see anything while I was there. It's like, hey, I was being a little bit underperforming. I didn't see that at all. It was a very hard-nosed tryout. Um, and during the tryout, he even pulled aside, I think, like 10 people. He's like, I want you guys to look at these guys here. They're sweating. They're tired. But these are the guys right now that are leading the pack to get WWE contracts. And I was probably one of those 10 people. And so I'm like, sweet, my trial's going great. Uh, but I, I, nothing came from it, which is perfectly fine because I'm happy where I'm at right now. We had Lucha Underground, so. Well, and that is, um, I, I know that there's a, you know, there's a span between the end of Tough Enough and where you're at now. Um, give me just a quick run through of some of the places that you worked out, uh, out in the West Coast. And, um, have you got a chance to travel, um, in over the world or throughout the world at all, get over to Europe or Japan or anything like that? I don't really want to go to Japan. Um, especially when I'm doing a lot of work, uh, work with Chipotle and then I get to Mexico. Um, I was able to get down to Germany with Alex Wright. Remember him from WCW? Yep. That's Wonderkin. That's right. <laughs> so, I got down to Germany last year um, for that. I was on mostly the West Coast. I was in Vegas, Colorado. Um, NWA Hollywood, correct? Yep, NWA Hollywood. Um, and I did a little bit of those shows. And really, my concentration was the WWE pulled me to heal up my leg, and then I talked to Stone Cold Steve Austin um, a couple times because he, he, he's one of those guys that you could tell was there. And in my mind, some of the guys from the WWE Tough Enough Trainers were there to collect a paycheck and be on WWE TV again. Yep. Stone Cold Steve Austin, the guy who's probably the most successful out of all of those guys, was there to make the business better. He was there to find somebody that was going to take this business up better. In my mind, that's what I, he handed me. He gave me his personal cell phone and said, hey, call him again. Um, and actually, he called me. I gave him my number and he called me. Um, and said, hey, as ragged, as odd, trying to keep up with me. Got some pissed off on tough enough. Um, and he was one of those guys that, he was there. Like, I don't even remember what the question was, but I'm just, Steve Austin. Oh, well, that's I, 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 the business better. Yeah, exactly. I, I, that's what the. So, are you, are you going to be on the Broken Skull Ranch? Are you going to get down there in one of those competitions? I thought about it. Um, that shit's uh, crazy. That is just some of that stuff's outrageous. I've got a bad heart. There's no way I could make it through half of that stuff. But um, <laughs> I enjoy the hell out of it, and and it's so stone cold when you see it. I mean, it's just hot, fucking crazy, just. Competition to the finest. And he says he loves that because it, it brings 
the mental toughness out of people that uh, a lot of times you don't get to see when you're going through work in 905. It would bring something mentally out of people that you don't want to see. And he says he loves those shows, but his favorite show to do is WWE Tuscan because he loves the wrestling business. That's his favorite show. I even asked him straight up because you hear rumors. Oh, WWE Tuscan was vague. No, 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 You hear rumors. The dirt sheet. I freaking love those dirt sheets. Um, it wasn't. It was an actual competition. I never, I had, sometimes when we ask questions, like, hey, well, this guy just did to that. Doesn't that make you angry? Like, you could see them trying to reach for any sort of straws that were already there in drama. But I was never saying, hey, you should say this because I really think you two would be good to, if you guys hate each other, that'd be great. No. It never, it was, it was competitions. Don't call Steve Austin taped it. Um, and then I called. So Uncle Steve Austin asked him, so tell me, Duke Robinson versus Andrew Lyon. That's what he went with? That's what he went with him? I'm just saying, really? I was like, hey, well, this, this, in my mind, I was best with, like, that was, that was with the uh, way the WWE layout was at that time. It was like, he was a man for it, and it was just honestly, you heard him on the dirt sheets. Like, oh, it was because he was big, or like some network all or something like that. Did there, did they? I don't know. But I asked you straight up, he said, about Andy was the man for Germany. I think Luke was. Two of those, that's why I was not. Well, uh, I've got a lot of stuff I want to talk to you about, Martin. We're at about an hour and a half right now. Um, Jesus, I'm sorry. No, dude, it's been awesome. I want to I wanna definitely talk with you again because we got to talk about Lucha Underground. Um, but I think what you just said was a perfect spot for us to kind of wrap up this part of the conversation and um, and, and build to, to another time uh, when we can speak about Lucha Underground, we can speak about um, some of the current day product. Because you and I, uh, you know, we watch, we love it, we, we, we watch WrestleMania and we've got a lot to talk about. Uh, we could probably sit here for another hour and a half and do that. Um, but the Low Blow Booking Podcast, we want to look at an aspect of something. So here's my scenario for you. Um, over the years, we've had Tough Enough, and we've had these competitions. We've had the Diva searches. We've had these things where the WWE tries to introduce a new character into their company through these competitions. And in all reality, it has kind of failed to introduce the winner into the biggest stage for the long run. Would you agree with that? Very much so. So, we look at some of the winners. Um, Maven was given the opportunity of a lifetime to fucking eliminate The Undertaker at the Rumble. And, you know, for one reason or another, Maven is now being a bouncer in New York or something like that. Um, we look at Andy Levine, who won your season of Tough Enough, and dude gets popped. And now where the hell is he? With guys like Josh Matthews, John Morrison, and The Miz not winning the contest but still having successful careers, what would you do if there was a tough enough competition um, today? Or I guess even back, even back when Andy won because it was before NXT, it was before the Performance Center. What would you do to introduce a character – from Tough Enough into the main roster of the WWE at that point in time? How do you think would be the best way for you to creatively 
um, put yourself on that big of a stage, um, or do you think that they needed more time to work? What, what would you say to that? Well, to go back to what you were saying about you got John Morrison who didn't win the first time, and then he won the second time. You got people who didn't win that made something out of it. Then you got these winners who won, and then nothing came out of it. I really think that is because of the people they choose in the case. That would be great in the TV. But these people, they see some of them have wrestled for a long time and legit want to make it in this business. But you got other people who just want some fame or just want some money out of it. Or like people who, okay, I, this business is fun, but it's a little bit too hard for me to do every single day. Like, I think what happens is, is you have those people who do talk enough and make the most of that, like John Morrison um, and Josh Matthews, you had those people that want to make something out of this business, they'll find a way to make something out of this business. Um, but going back to how would you bring it back? Right. Honestly, I would I meant, how would you bring a person from Tough Enough into into the landscape of the WWE? Um, you know, even, you know, I, I don't want to play, well, what if you didn't break your ankle? Would you have won? That kind of thing. But if you think about how do you bring a character from Tough Enough that year um, where it was given the ultimate stage, the ultimate audience, how would you bring a person from that into the current or that the product at that time? Honestly, you just have to put over WWE Tough Enough more than they did. After WWE Tough Enough, how many times have you actually even heard the name WWE Tough Enough on WWE programming? I think they had Andy Levine show up one time in a backstage segment with Stone Cold Steve Austin. Like, that's it. But then you don't bring back the guy, Andy Levine, and don't put him on WWE TV ever again. So, what you're doing is, yeah, we had this great competition, great TV, but we're not going to do with anything with the winner. So that person that wins WWE Tough Enough, you can go maybe a couple months max because wrestling fans, they move through storylines fast. You can move a couple months max before this guy needs to be on TV. And preferably, this guy needs to be on TV now. Like, first off, if you're going to do anything, keep putting over WWE Tough Enough and setting up for season two or season eight or whatever the heck you're going on now. Of WWE Tough Enough. This needs to be, if you're going to put over any sort of character from WWE Tough Enough, it needs to be an ongoing thing. And what you, I, in my mind, you should do, you've got the biggest name in the business in there. Don't call Steve Austin. You would see him there. The right idea was to put him in there with Andy. Let's give him the rub. But, well, how would you do it? Really, it would probably. Honestly. How would you build him on at that time? Yeah. I really think that match between whoever was like, I, I think that like Pantheon Vine, Bill Lamont, um, and Boo Robinson all had a match on uh, it. was like they went through the segments. Really, I think that when the, the winner of that match should wrestle Bill Lamont there on Raw. Mm-hmm. And it does something with Stone Cold Steve Austin involved to keep putting on tough WWE tough enough and saying, this guy is something. Give him, a, give him a shot, or I'm going there. Everyone shits on WWE tough enough. It's still cold to see if Austin comes back out and wants the hell out of every stuff everybody drinks beers. Yep. I thought Al Snow did that with the first season. When he was actively wrestling, he was constantly trying to put over the product of tough enough. Um, 
and I don't think that they gave it the legs after you know in during your season in the aftermath. Yeah, I don't think they could put over the, the legs at all. Because I, but I think what was better because they had what back when the Miz did this, this like million dollar challenge, they had like the Gladiator things, and they had all just like Hannah and then Rusty Prince um, on SmackDown. So you're using SmackDown time to make these guys that no one cares about too much doing stupid stuff no one really wants to see. But people, like, I don't believe I, We did some stupid stuff on WWE. Some midgets playing, playing basketball, man. What the hell was that? Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I thought it was ridiculous. Like, okay. Um, but people cared about what you did in the ring, those competitions that we did in the ring. So make that something... That happens on WWE tough enough, and then the actual match happened on Raw. Let's not mix the guys just like NXT where they do game show crap. That was horrid. Yep. Um, <laughs> do something with WWE tough where he has a match and hey, he goes over on a couple guys. And then, in my mind, keep putting over the fact that WWE tough enough, they keep mentioning it that he did this and this. Now he like he maybe even make a successful a success story. Maybe he's the big underdog now. That he gets in the WWE tough enough, now he gets surprised by the people on the big stage. At the very end, can't kill the character because he's got to go over on the big end. If he just just loses the big match at the end, then all right, well, WWE's up to tough enough. There's nothing again. I, can... I really agree with you. Is WWE tough enough needed to be talked about, mentioned, anything after the show to continue to make a season two and thereafter seasons? You got the biggest name in the business soon. I think there's all sorts of ways you could do it because you got Bill DeMont there who people always saw as now he's a hard-ass trainer. So that's a great story to put across. Let's let me and Bill have a match. Uh, let us go and actually have a run of the match and not just show highlights of it. Mm-hmm. Let's tell each other. They had Stone Cold Steve Austin or even like, you have The Miz. Let's put The Miz over here and said he has surpassed WWE tough enough. Let's let me and him go at it for a little bit. Um... And then at the very end, we have a match, and Stone Cold Steve, uh, Steve Austin you know, gets involved or something, um, where toughness comes out on top. Yep, and I believe the the key element is let's use what the people know, Bill Demott, Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Miz, to introduce something that they don't know, our tough enough winner. And put them over people that they see regularly. Now, there's plenty of guys who are not classified as jobbers in the WWE, but there are plenty of guys who know how to do a job and put somebody over. Um, and I think that's what you need to do with this product: is say, uh, this is how it works. Now, if the rumors are true and Tough Enough is coming back, it looks like it's going to be a performance center thing. It looks like it's going to be an NXT thing, and that may just be the right avenue for it to go um because like we talked about you need to talk about it you need to put it in people's faces and uh with the network now they can do anything they want um but i think that's that's the main thing give people what they know to introduce them to something that you want them to know uh by using people that they you know can believably beat um and in the end you hopefully get a star out of the entire process, and uh, Morrison, I thought, was really good for a long time. Josh Matthews, uh, you know, he's a very uh, a good talent for the WWE and now for TNA, and then uh, The Miz, you know, just you know, took, took what many would see as annoyance and turned it into a WWE champion that beat John Cena at WrestleMania. Um, 
you got to give people time, and um, we live in a fast-paced world where things need to change every second, and uh, it's it, there's got to be some time. We got to let things grow, and um, I think that's uh, that's what the name of the game is with Tough Enough is letting the product grow and not. It's kind of like the XFL. People said the XFL would have worked if it was three years, if it was a three-year product, and then after that they do it. But instead, they did it for one year, and now it's a laughing stock. Um, yeah, but. I agree. But watch the NFL today, and there's still things that the NFL took from the XFL that they pioneered. Um, and you never know you never know what history would have been uh, had had they given it more legs and um, done more things with it. And, you know, we can always play the, the guessing game, but, uh, you know, I don't think that we've seen the end of Martin Casals. It sounds like things with Lucha Underground are, are starting to pick up, and, and I think that's where we're going to kind of uh, wrap up our show today is to give people a teaser into the next opportunity that you and I get to talk and uh, describe to me what Lucha Underground is for people that haven't seen it. Um, talk about anything that you've also been doing on the side. Um, I know you're a big uh, comic book guy, um, big superhero guy. Um, talk about some of that stuff and, uh, you know, go go from there and see what the current product looks like and, and where we can take things and um, sit down for another hour and 40 minutes and, and shoot the shit. How's that sound? That sounds fantastic. And I 100% agree with it. And I, I couldn't have said it better uh, with WXL. You, you wrap it up perfectly. Use what they know to put, put something they don't know and put it over as much as they can using what they know. You put you said it perfectly right there. Um, and I think the problem with doing a podcast with two people who've wrestled before and we talk about stuff like tough stuff and hey, how did you care it hurt and how did it get I want to talk about it because it's something that was important to me. And you and me being wrestlers, we want to talk about wrestling all day. So makes a, a podcast a really long story. Absolutely. And and I'm looking forward to our feedback. You know, everybody um, was interested in seeing what we we're going to talk about. And I think that we delivered tonight. Um, Again, check us out on the Low Blow Booking Podcast. We're going to come back. Me and Martin are going to chat another time um, and, and see what his uh, his career with Lucha Underground's doing. Uh, myself and Dave Hall, uh, the Thunder from Down Under, uh, him and I are going to be coming back with some great stuff in the coming weeks. Um, we're definitely going to be looking at the uh, the Bret Hart situation in 97 and what would it look like if he had stayed around Um and, uh, you know, some other fun projects in the mix. We, we also really want to look at the Mah- uh, Muhammad Hassan angle and how that could have been handled better. And um, even the Ultimate Warriors uh, WWE title run in 1990. So a lot of fun stuff on the Low Blow Booking Podcast. Give us a share. Give us a like. Uh, let the people know about it. Martin, it has been an awesome experience talking to you tonight. I appreciate everything you've done, your honesty. And uh, I look forward to speaking with you again in the future, man. Martin, you have a great night, and uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to end things now with uh, the theme of the half-breed heartthrob, Martin Casales. Thank you very much.
wanna be famous, now my dream in reality is simultaneous. I'm glad you're all way to the top, if they put you on the pedestal, they can take you off. And there's a higher level than the top, you gotta make more, don't make do with what you got. Yeah, so go and get it in, sunny. not everybody 